Good morning. My name's Peter. And our reading today is the sermon reading, 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 18. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it is now being revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of one Sephirus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. We pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. I pray that my words now might be faithful and true, that we might grow together in our knowledge and love of you. Amen. If you are a Christian, then inevitably you'll be able to recall a time when you had the opportunity to bring Christ into a conversation and you didn't take it. We've all done it. We saw the ball, we could hit the ball, but we let the ball go through to the keeper. 
And for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, we don't want the conflict. We are fearful it will impact our relationship with that person. We're fearful that it will impact our work relationship. We don't know what to say. And often we're fearful that if we say the wrong thing, that we will do even you know, more harm than good. So perhaps it's better not to say anything at all. Perhaps we're fearful of what they will say back and how that will confront our own faith. So it's easy to feel intimidated. And when we feel intimidated, it's easy to be timid. Uh, certainly as we read this letter of Paul, as he writes to Timothy, Timothy is in an intimidating situation. So Paul writes to give him confidence. A confidence to fend off the attacks that he's experiencing, but also confidence to keep standing and to keep moving forward with the gospel. Our passage last week concluded with Paul acknowledging the influence of Timothy's mother and grandmother in his coming to faith, but also the sincerity of his faith. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you. And that faith is a wonderful source of joy and hope and security, but it also comes with a responsibility. You know, if you join a team, you don't just get to wear the jersey and, and hang out with the team. You've actually got to contribute something useful on the field. You've got to kick some goals or you know, defend some goals or you know, do whatever they do in the middle. Which for every half, I've just in every team sport ever, I've just defended you deeply. It's one of the small pleasures of my role. But here, Paul's saying, you know, Timothy's part of the team, he's been serving hard on the team, but now it's time to step it up. Now for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And last week we were talking about how Saul the Pharisee, who later became uh, Paul, feared Christianity would become like a bushfire that would sort of rage through the Christian the, the Jewish community. Now, unfortunately, I think I've mixed my metaphors a little bit unhelpfully because last week that, that example was a negative example. A bushfire is bad. But here the image of fanning into flame is actually a, a positive image. It speaks to intensity and urgency and purpose. That God has given him something to do, and now is the time to do it. Now, I mean, Timothy hasn't exactly been sitting around, really, has he? You know, it's not like he's sitting on the couch, you know, eating twisties, watching reruns of The Simpsons. But he's coming to a point in time when things are going to change dramatically. Because Paul knows the time for my departure is near. So Timothy will need to step up. Uh, in terms of his leadership, in terms of his authority, in terms of his responsibility. And he's about to become one of the first of the second generation of Christian leaders. Now, we don't know the specifics of his gift, but most likely it seems to be the gift of leadership. And absolutely fundamental to that gift is the gift of proclaiming God's <coughs> word faithfully and being an example of that word, and when we get it wrong as, as leaders, to be an example of what it looks like to recognise when we get it wrong, when we sin, and to repent. So in 1 Timothy we read, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And so that leader-teacher role is consistent with you know, Paul laying his hands on Timothy in this passage. It was a symbolic way of saying that we are giving you authority uh, from the church to be a person who represents the gospel and represents Christ. And with that responsibility comes all sorts of pressure. Some of that pressure was from the society around them. So Timothy, at the time, is leading in the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was most known for one of the great wonders of the ancient world, which was the Temple of Artemis. And when you read about you know, how the church was planted in Ephesus, it did not go smoothly. And Paul is being told to stand up for Christ in this place. So there's a lot of cultural pressure on Timothy to be faithful to the gospel. But there's also a lot of pressure from within the Christian community. Some people are trying to change that message to something that's more perhaps socially acceptable or something that connects more with their heritage and their Jewish background or something that's kind of a, a bit of Christian and a bit of Greek all kind of mashed together. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be intimidated because you have the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So it's a power to stand firm, even when our commitment to Christ threatens our friendships or our relationships or our work opportunities, or threatens the respect that we care about from people who we respect. And we feel weak just thinking about that, don't we? You need to think about what does it look like to stand up in the world. That, that's a hard thought. But here, we're reminded that in all of those scenarios, we have the power of God's Spirit. At the same time, the Spirit's pushing us to be people who are characterised by love. That we have a love for God, that we have a love for the world around us, that we have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And part of that love is a love for those who view the world differently to us. Now, love is not simply agreeing. I think that's the mantra of our, of our culture in our modern era, that if you love me, you will agree with me. But often, the greatest expression of love is loving when we profoundly disagree, but we still love the other person. And that sort of love is going to take self-discipline. Some of that self-discipline is spending time in God's word and prayer, making sure that our, our feet are firmly planted. Uh, we know where we stand. Some of that self-discipline is going to be resisting the temptation of the world around us. But it's also self-discipline in the sense of how we then respond to those people who perhaps make our life more difficult. And God's Spirit helps us to react with grace and compassion and to be compelling rather than argumentative. Because that's the temptation, isn't it? When we feel threatened, uh, we tend to react. In the context of, of Paul writing to Timothy, he's saying, so do not be ashamed of the Lord, but he's also saying, and do not be ashamed of me. Yes, Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome, and it would seem, from the way he's writing 
that there's a whole bunch of Christians who want to distance themselves from Paul because he is in prison. Yeah, so later in this chapter he goes on to say, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. So in a society that cares a lot about honour and shame, it's pretty shameful that one of the big Christian leaders is in prison. Now added to that, you've got these false teachers in the church who want to attack Paul's message. And one very effective way to attack someone is to attack the messenger. And Paul being in prison certainly helps their cause as they try to preach and teach and influence a different gospel. And so Paul responds by saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Instead, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The word gospel is one of those sort of Christian words, in fact, you only hear it in Christian circles, really, that we say a lot, but often struggle to define a little bit. You know, what does it mean? And most literally, it just means good news. But in the Bible, it's always the good news about Jesus. And we get a pretty good picture of that message here. So it's a message about salvation, but also transformation. So the gospel is he has saved us and calls us to a holy life. And the emphasis is very clearly on he and not me. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The problem with sin is it's all-consuming. It promises the world, but then destroys everything. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationships with one, with one another. And then in amongst all of that destruction, though, God offers life. There is this real and present good in being saved. But in God's grace, he also secures our future. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has, been who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. So even before God created the world, God knew that humanity would sin, and God had a plan to save humanity from that sin. So God's plan is not circular. It's not all about trying to get back to the good old days of the Garden of Eden. It's a journey from creation to new creation. And it's a messy journey, and sin is part of that journey. And in that journey, he is the one who moves our heart of stone to become a heart of flesh, uh, to recognise sin and to seek forgiveness. But as you hear that, I think for some, you might be thinking, why would God choose to do things that way? You know, we like the idea that some will be saved for heaven, but why would he choose at the same time, the implication of that is, that some will inevitably go to hell? Why would he choose to do that? And there's no clear, simple, you know, solve all the problems answer to that question. I think the closest answer we get is perhaps in Romans 9, when Paul says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? 
Now, that's only a part of an answer. And as much as we would love a whole answer, what matters more is recognising what is true. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then sin really must be a problem, and Jesus really must be the solution. And so we need to hear that message of Jesus and recognise Jesus as Saviour and Jesus as Lord. We don't have all the answers, but we've got the most critical answer, don't we? That we need to respond to the Gospel. Now that's exactly what Paul has done, and that obedience has resulted in being appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. But also, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. Now, lots of people want to distance themselves from Paul because he's in prison. But for Paul, his imprisonment is a result of him being saved. This is the inevitable outworking of God's plan for him. And so he doesn't see this as a a, a point of shame at all. Uh, He sees this as a point of honour, that he's in prison for the Lord. He's not in prison for his sin. He's in prison because he has trusted God and he has been faithful to him. This is the gospel message that has saved him, and this is the same message that Timothy is now called to guard. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, the first step to guarding is to be clear about what you're guarding. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the message of the Holy Spirit and then convinces us that it is true. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing behind the scenes. And that's important because if we're not clear about where we stand, then we will inevitably be overwhelmed by the world around us. Now, for some, that lack of clarity might be around where the Bible fits in terms of, yeah, how did God create the world and where does science and how does all of that work together? Or perhaps it is about, you know, why would God, a good, excuse me, a good God, create hell. And then all of that leads to a bit of a down rabbit hole. Uh, And we start to question, well, what do we believe at all? And there are certainly plenty of voices in our secular culture who want to target that lack of clarity and push us off our gospel foundation. Now, the point isn't uh, to put our head in the sand and avoid thinking about inconvenient things. The point is, if that is our struggle, then let's work through those struggles. What are the questions we have? And then how do we seek out answers? And how do we pray that God might give us clarity where we feel doubt? I think for some, uh, to move in a slightly different direction, the temptation isn't necessarily to abandon our faith altogether, but just simply sort of shuffle the foundation along a bit, you know, to something that is a more convenient gospel, something that's a little more comfortable to stand on, Uh, perhaps one that focuses more on blessing and less on responsibility. And so the gospel is redefined as God loves, and not so much God saves, but God gives. And that sort of gospel stops talking about sin and repentance and obedience and responsibility, and it focuses on a God who affirms. And we love that, don't we? We all love affirmation. But often what we're really looking for is permission. Permission to live the way we want to live. So it's a gospel that no longer calls us to live a holy life, 
And so in reality, it's actually no gospel at all. The thing about a false gospel, or at least a good false gospel, if you can call it that, is it's always got some truth. It's always got enough truth to make it sound good. And so we need to guard the gospel in our own lives. We need to be gracious and generous, but at the same time uncompromising in how we guard the gospel against anyone who would seek to change it. And that means we need to keep humbly coming back to God's word and saying, what does it actually say? And how do I understand that clearly? And I think part of the challenge is trying to recognise, well, what's a gospel issue? What are the parts of the Bible which are so fundamental that if you get them wrong, you've really taken Christ out of Christian? And then what are the other issues that are still really significant, but they're not salvation-defining? And so to go with a bit of a car illustration, what's a petrol diesel issue? Okay, you get that wrong when you put, put diesel in your, pet, in your unleaded car. World of disappointment. Uh, you know, that, that's an issue that if you get that wrong, the car doesn't run at all. You know, versus perhaps a tyre pressure issue. You know, still significant, still going to affect how your car runs. It's either going to make life easier or harder, but not a salvation issue. And it's really hard to know sometimes which is which. And it's hard to know sometimes when do I need to be guarding the gospel and when do I need to accept our differences for the sake of unity. And that takes a real wisdom. I think the problem with trying to give an example is whatever example I give is going to walk into a complete minefield. And I don't like minefields, I tend to try to avoid them. Um, but I think it's worth at least trying to give an example that is relevant. And so I say with some fear and trepidation, I think a good example is the role of men and women in the church. Now I hold um, what is often labelled a complementarian view which says men and women are equal before God. Uh, we are equal in terms of our salvation and our value as people. But men and women are given different roles in the church. And men are called to lead the church, and one expression of leadership is what I'm doing right now, which is preaching. Uh, it's not about ability or capacity. It's about the unique roles that God has given both men and women. All of that is very unacceptable stuff in our culture. But it's also contentious for Christians. So I'm convinced of that biblical view. Uh, however, I have good friends who are equally committed to listening to God's word, they're not being flippant, uh, who hold a very different view, what's called an egalitarian view, where all the roles in the church can be done by men or women. Now, I wouldn't choose to go to a church, an egalitarian church, as my weekly church. Uh, but if I walked into a church and I sat down and a woman was preaching that day, I wouldn't leave and I'd be very thankful for the way she proclaims and teaches God's word faithfully. Now, my point isn't to get into a debate about the roles of men and women in the church. My point is simply that here's an example that, in my opinion, is important, but it's not a salvation issue. I think it matters, I just don't think it matters as much as life and death. You know, Paul has raised some big issues as he's been writing to Timothy in this passage. And that's sort of the nature of Paul's writing, you know, very dense. I and mean, we've covered quite a few themes today. So out of all the themes we've covered, 
of what stood out for you. So here's a few options. Do we need to stop being timid or perhaps being ashamed and start standing up for Christ in our family, amongst our friends, at work? Do we need to do some fanning into flame of the gift that you have been given? It won't be the same as Paul. It might not be an upfront gift. It might be a behind-the-scenes kind of gift. But we've all been given gifts, and do you need to fan into flame your gift? Have you actually accepted the gospel that Jesus is the saviour who came into the world to save sinners? And maybe you've been here for a week, maybe you've been here for, you know, 20 years. And that's a gospel you've heard, but you've never committed to. If you haven't, then can I encourage you to say, where do you stand before God? Are you guarding the gospel in your own life if you are a Christian? Or do you feel you're standing on shaky ground? And if you are standing on shaky ground, then what can you do about that? How can you shore up the comfort? The ground isn't shaky necessarily, but your confidence is shaky. So how do we shore up our confidence in where we stand? And then lastly, do we need to guard the gospel against someone in your sphere of Christian relationships who you love, but who is trying to say or proclaim or teach a different gospel. Not just on the minors, but on the majors. And if that's happening, then how do we, with grace and generosity, speak into that teaching? Uh, speak against that teaching, but in a way that's going to be compelling and in a way that's humble. But they're all things that Paul wants for Timothy and so my encouragement is, out of all these things that Paul wants for Timothy, what are you hearing as one thing that God wants for you? And as you reflect on that, let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are in control of all things. That even before the creation of the world, you have, have a plan to send your Son so that we might have life and eternal life. Help us to hear the things we need to hear, that we might live out your salvation and live a life holy and set apart for you. Amen.